Through Their Mother's Eyes is a series of conversations with mothers who share their hearts and experiences raising black sons who, because of the color of their skin, are often feared, hated, and not valued as human beings. Hello, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Through Their Mother's Eyes, where we have real conversations with real mothers of Black sons in today's environment. This is Florence, and I do not have Carla with me today, but that's okay. We can get through this. I have with me my friend, Bacardi Jackson. I am so excited to be speaking with you this evening and to just hear your thoughts and to hear more about your story. So what I'd like to do to start out is I would like to ask you to share, you know, just some background about you. Who are you? What do you do? What it, you know, about your children, etc. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this podcast and um, what you are exploring here. I think it is so critically important. Um, as you mentioned, I am um, Bacardi Jackson. I am an attorney. Um, with the Southern Poverty Law Center. And um, more importantly for this conversation, I'm a mother of three children, um, two boys and a girl, and um, they are 10, 12, and 14. So at some pretty critical ages um, for what is happening around us. Um, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. My um, parents are both, um, were both civil rights activists. My mother's still living, my father's deceased. Um, my mother, was um, the person who organized 1967 Pentagon demonstration and was uh, the person who got Congress to take its first action against apartheid and has spent my whole life fighting for the civil rights and freedom of black people, even though she is a, a white Jewish woman from Detroit. My father um, was one of the um, one of the colleagues of Dr. King and um, before that had been one of the members of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, part of the Nashville uh, student movement that took the second round of Freedom Rides. Um, as a member of SCLC with Dr. King, he was um, the one who was the, the strategist behind the Birmingham March of the Children, as well as the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge that became known, known as Bloody Sunday. Um, so. Both of them um, were deeply, deeply engaged in the civil rights and human rights movements across the, the globe that have impacted the globe and have set the stage for where we are now. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. It's, it's, interesting. it's interesting how much I don't know about my friends and it's interesting how much more so I knew some of that and then, you know, obviously some of it I didn't know and I know that there's much, much, much more. So you, with everything that's going on and I know that you, you grew up around all of this, right? So there's, there's, you did not, as people like to say, you didn't get woke recently. You didn't get woke, you know, 10 years ago or whatever you, you grew up with it. Some of us as, as parents, we, you know, it's, it's when our children were born or when we were thinking about having children that we started thinking about these things. I know I thought about these things long before then because of 
just things that I, I noticed and, and this fear I had of having sons. And I remember when I was a child thinking I wanted to have daughters because of how much more difficult it would be to have to, for my black sons to have to deal with being, you know, fitting every description out there. So, but you, this is in your, you know, this is in your blood from your mother and your father. So with all of these things that are going on now, so uh, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, specifically in this time frame during the pandemic, if you, if, if I asked you to give me one word that would sum up how you're feeling about all of this right now, what would that be? I, I think it would probably be exhausted. Um, and I, I say that because this has not changed. So um, you're right, I grew up in the midst of the movement, in the midst of fighting for basic rights um, that Black people didn't have. I grew up in a very segregated Memphis, Tennessee um, with very overt racism. I had a neighbor who once held a shotgun at me and said, come here in girl. Um, so grew up with very powerfully racist experiences with a very racially divided city. Um, when I went to college, I was a, a campus organizer. Um, one of the big things that happened while I was in college was the Rodney King beating trials where the white officers were exonerated. I led marches around that. Um, and that was decades ago. And we are still here. Um, and so I say exhausted because it is shameful that we have not really moved the needle in all of those decades from my parents' work to, to the work I did as a young person to the work I do now um, as a civil rights attorney. Um, we are still in this moment where Black men in particular, but Black women as well, don't know whether or not they will live or die when they wake up in the morning. I can't even say when they leave their doorstep because we have seen the examples of even Black people being killed in their own homes. So it is, it's exhausting. Interesting, I smiled when you said that because that is the word that has been my word. I know it won't be everybody's word, even though I know that people are tired. And I, I know that, that everybody's tired, right? So there's a segment of the population that is tired of this being a thing again, quote unquote. There's a segment of the population that's tired of this still being a thing. And people are having to have conversations that are uncomfortable and human beings will do anything to avoid discomfort or pain or anything that requires introspection or anything like that. So it's, again, a really big part of why we're doing this is because we people need to hear from people like you and people like me and just how this affects us as human beings, as mothers, as professionals as you know everything everything that we are so uh, the fact that you said exhausted I, I uh, yeah that made me smile before so before you became the mother of black sons because you have you have two of them before you became the mother of black sons how aware were you and I know Growing up the way you did, you were probably more aware than, than most people, but how aware were you of the plight specifically of black males in this, in this country, in this world? 
Um, sadly, very. Um, I grew up in pretty impoverished conditions because nobody pays civil rights workers. Um, so we grew up in in dealing with all of the difficulties that you see in urban America today. Um, we grew up around communities that were suffering, um, where people didn't have um, viable options to participate in society the way they should. So I grew up with a stepfather who was incarcerated frequently. I grew up visiting him at a penal farm. I knew what it was like um, to have to be um, searched um, by guards at a very young age, to be looked at suspiciously, to be treated like something less than human, and to see him treated that way, to see him locked up and caged. Um, I grew up, I'm also the sister of six brothers, um, grew up with one of them close to me, but I have witnessed and watched their experiences in the world as Black men having to navigate um, circumstances that no one should have to navigate. Um, one of the most heartbreaking ones I recall was my little brother leaving his father, my stepfather's funeral, and dropping off a stepbrother who lived in a in a project and the officer just assumed my brother who didn't live there must be there to get drugs and he was um, on the day of his father's funeral dragged out of the car thrown on the ground um, and begged the officer please look at my seat you will see the program for my father's funeral and you know these are the experiences that we have to to witness and experience with those men that we love um, and you feel that pain, you don't go through it necessarily in the same way. So I've also been, you know, I've had great friends who are black men and, um, and you know, have been stopped in cars with them um, getting pulled over because we were driving while black. I mean, even in college, we would, we would actually kind of have fun with it. We would go to the, the mall at Stanford and um, it would be a, a crew of us. And we knew when we got there, we would be followed. And so we would have a plan. When we get there, we're going to wait, we're going to walk, we're going to have them follow us. And then we're going to all split up and go different directions and let's see who they follow, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, sadly, those are the games you have to play as Black people in America. Yeah. Um, because otherwise, you're just crushed and sad all the time. It, people just, people just don't, no, the assumption is just that he's a black guy, he's up to no good. We're hearing a lot these days about social inequity, about social justice. We're hearing a lot about white privilege. We're hearing, we're hearing a lot about systemic racism and, and, and all of those things that we're hearing. If you were, and you know, an elevator ride, you, you've heard this because you, you, you've been a professional for a long time, and ask you for your elevator speech. If you were in an elevator with somebody who said to you, because a lot of us are hearing this, what can I do? If you were in the elevator with that person and you only had 20 to 30 seconds, and the person said, what can I do? What can I do? What would you say? I would say first and foremost, educate yourself and don't expect me to carry your emotional and intellectually um, lacking baggage. 
um, you need to do that work yourself. Secondly, I would say, look at your own life. Um, don't think that the racist is somewhere else over there. Um, oftentimes, we don't, and, and it's not even just non-Black people, it's all of us. We all have grown up with the same bad air. And we have to look in the mirror and ask, what privileges are we walking around with and accepting and not challenging because they provide us some benefit. So that would be my later speech. <laughs> that's good. That's good. I that is that is really good because like I said, and, and I'm sure you know this, I'm not sure how much you hear it in your line of work because you're working with people who are who are either fighting for the same thing or just blatantly fighting against it. But I know that I, I hear it a lot. I hear it a lot in corporate America. I hear it a lot in not hearing it so much at church. I feel like there are people at church who are, it's, it's hard for church people, especially in a state like Florida. If you're not in an all black church, it is hard for church people to, to do that, to reconcile the two things. You know, I, I'm a Christian and, the, the whole, you know, just pray, you should pray, you know, um, hurting people should pray. And I have nothing, I, I mean, I pray, I believe, I absolutely believe that power of prayer, but that's, that can't be your, um, that you have to make, like you said, you have to reflect, you have to check your heart and you have to have some really tough conversations with yourself before you can go have those conversations with other people. I've had to have conversations with myself. And you talk about the privilege we walk around with. You know, I'm an obviously non-white person, but I have walked around with certain privilege too. Because of where I was raised, because of the way I was educated, because of the way I speak, because of the fact that my parents are from Haiti and not the States. I've had people say to me, well, you know, that's better than being black American. And I'm like, seriously, where in the world are you going to go and have somebody tell you that Haiti, like people think Haiti is the pit of, you know, but people think, oh, well, at least you're not black American, but I was born here. I'm American. Haitians came over here to fight with us. I mean, this is not, anyway, I'm not going to get on my soapbox. This is about you. <laughs> Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I, I have the same um, constant conversations because even, you know, as you talk about the um, experiences of the, and the variations even within the Black community, I mean, colorism is a real thing. I grew up with the privilege of light skin. I grew up with a college-educated white mother. I grew up, you know, my father was college-educated edu as well. Um, and so those presented very real privileges. I had horrible racist experiences that happened to me throughout my life, but I also know they could have been much worse and they were much worse for others. And even things like looking at the, num the percentage of black folks in graduate schools, a vast, vast majority are either um, of mixed racial ancestry or are um, of West Indian descent um, and have immigrant parents. And, and part of that, is about that history here in America of an ingrained sense of self-hatred and an ingrained sense of inferiority and superiority um, that sometimes immigrant populations are spared. Um, yes. And an expectation that may be a little different 
um, for folks who are expected to be hardworking or have those reputations um, versus the stereotypes and the constant narratives that we're fed about what Black Americans are like, notwithstanding that Black Americans are who built the wealth of this country and really globally. So um, that's that's the sad reality of it is that, yeah, there are very real privileges that we all have to check at the door. Um, right. right. And, and not take it. It's not, I know that some people can't acknowledge privilege because then they feel like it makes them a bad person. And there comes a time when you have to get over yourself. You have to give yourself grace. You have to do the self exploration and then whatever you find, give yourself grace. And now that you know better, do better. There's not an excuse after this point once you've done it, but people don't want to do it because humans are frail. And well, and, and the real key is not feeling walking around feeling guilty. I mean, I really don't want another white person coming up saying they're sorry they're white. Um, the real key is saying, what are you doing to dismantle the privilege you're walking in the world with? Do you just sit back and accept that privilege and say, oh, yay, for me, I get all of this that you don't get? Or do you do the real work? It's what, you know, Ibram X. Kendi talks about is, are you anti-racist? You're either um, supporting a system through your, your supposed neutrality, which there is no neutrality, um, or you're taking it down. And if you're not taking it down, you're part of it. And so I think that is the real key. Guilt is not productive for us. Um, we need to be coming up with, you know, just like you talked about the church, you know, hopes and prayers are not a strategy. We need a plan. Uh, and so um, you have to actively be doing the work. Um, and that's where the, that's where, you know, you become an ally, not by talking about how guilty you feel. Because then you're just asking people to hold your emotional baggage even more. If you and again, for you, that this is this. It's interesting asking you some of these questions because of how you grew up and how aware you grew up of this. But if you could talk to your younger self now, what would you tell your younger self about being the mother of a black son? Well, I think you know that question for me is probably um, pretty complex. Um, the, the biggest thing that I would do in the shoes that I've walked is I would have frankly left sooner and made sure my children and my boys in particular were surrounded by examples of non-toxic black masculinity. Um, for me, my children unfortunately had the experience of witnessing and experiencing domestic violence. Um, and so that's a real um, layer that happens within our community and every community that we often don't talk about. Um, but that would be the strongest lesson I would say to my youngest self uh, or younger self um, is to set those boundaries that will ensure that my black boys grow up to be the men I have birthed and raised them to be. Um, and anything that endangers that, um, needed to be pushed out much faster um, from their lives. Um, in terms of the things that are happening in the world, I think I have literally equipped them from the day they were born, um, sadly, with the expectations. I mean, you, if you ask that question about in my ideal world, I would have left them with much more of their innocence and childhood and would have been able to skip those conversations. But sadly, 
you know, from a very early age, I had to teach them that they were black boys in America and that meant something different for them than most of their peers in school. They didn't have the same luxuries and privileges to, to behave the same way, to make the same mistakes. It just wasn't their path. Right. And, and I'm, I'm with you on that. I, we had this conversation last night that I was, and, and, and I often, I, not often, but I, I have asked myself in the past, did I deprive them of something? Like that wonder. But I have to admit to myself that I didn't. I, I let my children be children. I let them enjoy it. I didn't tell them you have to oh, hate the police. You have to, everybody's out to get you. I didn't do that. But I did say, like you said, your experience is going to be different. You know, that whole idea that we're raised knowing that we have to work 50 times harder to be considered even half as good at something as other people and, and, you know, having conversations with my sons, cause I am nothing but sons and having conversations with them about the fact that, you know, you could be hanging out with your friends and something, you know, something happens or something. If you're the only black kid, the first person chances are they're going to look at is you because you're a black male. And so it's like, like you in my ideal world, that wouldn't have been necessary. I could have just let them grow up and be this, you know, same silly, thoughtless kids <laughs> that kids are, you know. But right, and that's the sad. I mean, in my in my growing up, it was probably less dangerous because I grew up in black communities and black schools where there was less concern about black lives. They are oftentimes, you know, and, and particularly in their earlier years, were the only ones or one of a few in their classrooms. And, you know, that's even more of a dangerous situation yes. um, than, than it is when you're in a, a predominantly black environment. Yes, it is. And I, I didn't think of it that way because I, I was raised in, in all white neighborhoods. My brother, my sister, and I were the only, you know, the three black kids usually. And I didn't think of it until I got a little older and I thought about it and I thought, okay, but being exposed to, you know, I have a huge family, so I was always exposed to black people, but they didn't live around us. They lived in other states. And so being in a place where you are the only or one of the only few, there, there is, there, there can be strength in numbers, you know, and, and I had never thought of it that way until I was, until I was older. So let me, so here's, here's at this point, we're going to do what we call the speed round. And so we've, we've talked about, you know, hearing certain things from people, right, these days. And so these things are things that I have either heard, from, for the most part, people have actually said these things to me. And some of them are things that I've just, as I've allowed myself to look at social media a little bit, I had to, I had to take a break from that. But some things that I've read on, on social media, some comments that people have made. So the, the first one is when people talk about Black Lives Matter, what is the first thing that pops into your mind when somebody says all lives matter? You know, I think people are being um, purposefully obtuse um, when they say that, and it's, and it's really about their own anger at the fact that people are raising an issue. And, it, and, it's, and it's, 
frustrating and angering because all lives aren't under assault um, and haven't been under assault historically. Black lives have been. Um, and if you disagree with the sentiment that Black lives matter, that problem is a deeply rooted problem within you. Um, that's not an opinion. It's not a movement. That's a fact. Black lives matter, period. And like that, that's not an opinion. It's not a movement. It's a fact. Yes. And, and that doesn't take away from any other lives. Um, but if you can't understand that the history of this country mandates that we take care of black lives, which as Lonnie Guineer explained, are the canaries in this mine, um, that if those lives are saved, literally every other life will be saved because those are the people who are always on the fringes, who are most under threat. And if we can figure it out for black lives, we can figure it out for the rest. I love that. I love that. Okay, good. So here's, here's, here's another, and I, and I giggle a little bit because when I, the first time I heard this, I was so angry. So, uh, so what's the first thing you think of, would think of if you heard somebody say this, that there are more black lives lost in abortion clinics than at the hands of police? Yeah, that's also equally infuriating. One has, one has really um, nothing to do with the other. It's as if you say, I'm going to point to some flaw with you as a human so that I can justify you being murdered and killed in another instance. And it's the, the spotlight is on the wrong thing. You're, you're trying to address what you want to make a personal flaw or fault versus the systemic issues. And the systemic issues actually are the same for both of those things. If, if there are a lot of black abortions, why is that? Um, is that because people don't have sufficient jobs, they don't have the proper um, means to get health care that they should have? Um, and why is that? Um, and so if you want to talk about it, we can, but you need to have a systemic conversation because it's the same one that does impact why Black lives are being um, snuffed out by police officers. These are big system problems. It's not problems that are located within individuals as, as much as people might try to place them there. Uh, another one is, so slavery ended more than 150 years ago and the civil rights movement was decades ago. So why can't you just let it go? I would love to. Um, <laughs> the question is, is can we get to a place where we can um, address the vestiges of slavery, the vestiges of Jim Crow, the vestiges of discrimination that have lasted hundreds and hundreds of years. Those things can't be fixed all of a sudden because you say, oh, okay, we're good now. Um, no, we're not. Um, we have, I mean, I mentioned earlier the notion of reparations and, and that's not a far-fetched or outrageous notion. Um, people used to think of it as such, but I think people now are more realizing how realistic and necessary it is. Um, we have done reparations in many, many other instances, uh, and we've seen examples of that globally. Um, and we're so quick to be willing to throw money at and bail out corporations and all kinds of other folks, but we don't want to make real financial amends for the real financial damage that has occurred in our, our, our country. 
we didn't just wake up and 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 get the benefit of all of our parents and grandparents labor and it's not even just about the familial labor but if you go back and look at the history of laws that were passed in this country the history of benefits that were granted to white people um, whether it was through the gi bill whether it was through land grants none of those things have been available for black people in this country and um, and that is a real, real disadvantage. The redlining that's occurred, the, the things that still exist, the deserts where you don't even have technology accessible to people as doing distance learning. There are families that are completely cut off because they don't even have cell phone towers in their neighborhood. So, you know, we can certainly get over it when we create the circumstances um, that will allow us to. I would love nothing more than to put the Southern Poverty Law Center out of business. Um, but that will require us making the proper amends and um, dealing with the systemic oppression that continues right now. Right, right. Which, you know, it took, took generations to get to this point. So it's not going to happen. Like you said, it's not just, okay, it's done. It's going to take time and effort and real work. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a quick right. fix. My great-grandfather was a slave. That's only three generations from me. There are people who know what their great-grandfathers left them. My great-grandfather was not in a position to leave me anything. That's, that's real. That's, that's not that long ago. No, it's, it's, that is not. Some people still have, I'm trying to think generationally speaking, some people still have their great-grandparents alive. Some people, you know, so it's, it's not. This is somebody you could have depending on how young everybody was, but you could have known or just missed knowing, depending on, on your, your family. So another one is, so most people can admit that slavery is wrong. So, but you can't hold on to that forever. Look at how, look at you. I mean, you went to law school, look at how people like you have, have, have made it. Why can't, why can't everybody do that? which you pretty much just answered. <laughs> and, and even if you look at a black person who has managed to succeed um, under what people define as success, um, whatever that means, how much further could they have been um, absent all the generations of oppression? Um, yes, I may have made some successes, but there are things I shouldn't have had to overcome. There are things that should have been a given in my life. There are things that I should be able to enjoy at this point generationally um, growing up in America that I can't and I don't take for granted. Um, there are things that I should be able to pass on to my children that I know I can't, like a sense of safety, a sense of, of knowing that their skin color won't be the difference. I can't do that. And so, um, you know, yes, um, there are some of us who have managed to squeeze through, but again, that too, oftentimes relate to some privileges that we have. Um, as I mentioned, some of the ones that I, I have. Right, so, you know, this notion that we should all just be fine by now, or if, if you were to work hard, you could just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, that's, that's a myth that doesn't exist. Um, those of us who have been able to, to overcome some of these barriers and obstacles have done it um, oftentimes um, because we're standing on the shoulders of other people who have blazed the trail, because people have open pathways. Um, 
because we have ourselves some privilege just in our existence. Like for me, I have a white educated, um, college educated mother. I have a educa college educated father. Um, those are real privileges and advantages in our society that every black person is not in a position to have because systemically and institutionally, we haven't set it up that way. We've purposefully created a permanent underclass in, in the black people um, in our country because that serves the interest of corporate America. It serves white privilege. It serves a hierarchy that we believe um, is, is um, what people I think would think is natural. <laughs> um, and so I, I think, you know, that's a, a really ignorant statement um, that is not um, at all informed by the history of this nation and the reality that, that most of us still face. And even those of us who have so-called succeed have done so at an incredible expense and we still face incredible obstacles. I mean, I spent, I started out my career in large, mostly white firms and those experiences were deeply traumatizing. Um, the things that I was able to do, it was only because I, I fought like hell to do it. And it was not a given and and I still didn't get as far as I should have gotten. Um, and I saw much less qualified white people um, getting many, many, many more advantages than I could have ever hoped to get in those environments. Right, yep, yep, that is, that is not rare. So this, this one is one of my favorites and I'm gonna combine two here. So I, and I've had people say this to me, uh, really, when have you or your kids experienced racism? And, and you're raising them, you know, you're raising them fine. I mean, they go to good schools, they, they speak a certain way, as long as they don't dress a certain way, they're fine. So you guys, you know, you guys don't have to worry about that. What do you, what do you think when somebody says that? I would love to bring them in to walk a day in, in my shoes. Um, that's absolutely absurd and it does not at all comport with, with my experiences. I myself personally, I talked about some of the, the very horrific experiences of racism that I've had. Um, and, and even those to me were not even as insidious as the, the deaths of a thousand cuts that you get walking around with the microaggressions um, with even if you're walking down the street and there's a presumption that the white woman coming toward you is not going to move um, as we're socially distancing or, you know, there, there, there are constant, constant assaults on our very existence and whether we have the right to walk around with the same privileges and expectations as other people. Um, my child, when he was just eight years old, was profiled in a store. We were in Canada. We weren't even in the U.S. And a woman came over to him from the counter to stand over him as he was looking at trinkets that were like $2 trinkets. And I walked over, I was sitting outside of the store and he was looking, he was saying, Ma, Ma, come look. And he was eight, he was just a baby. And I walked over and I said, Solomon, you put that down. I said, because even if you really love it, we will not buy a thing in this store. And I pointed to the woman and said, because this woman standing over you does not respect your humanity. I said, so if we have to walk a mile in the freezing cold in Canada, we will do it, but we will not support this woman or this store. And 
you know, those are the kinds of things that our children experience constantly. And, and sometimes the discrimination we experience, we don't even know it because you don't even find out how much less money you're making or um, what kinds of things you don't have access to or what opportunities you were looked over for because that's not even always that visible. And so, you know, there is no such thing as we have made it and this is over. Um, we are not in a post-racial America. Thank you for joining us for Through Their Mother's Eyes, Real Talk with Moms of Black Sons. We'll be back next week with another great conversation. In the meantime, don't forget to like and follow us and join the conversation on Facebook or Instagram.